The psalm that we have before us today is not the most beloved psalm, because I think that's solidly Psalm 23. But it would be in the conversation of being in the top five most beloved psalms in the entire Psalter. And it is special because of what it says, and it's also special because of what kind of psalm it is. You might remember when we did our our introduction to the psalms, we talked about how there are kinds of psalms and there are groupings of psalms. There are, there are for example, books of psalms. Psalm, the psalms is really a collection of books of psalms. And so we have internal organization to the psalms somewhat. And one of the clear ones is the kind of psalm that Psalm 121 is, which is known as a psalm of ascent. Now, notice how ascent is spelled here, okay, A-S-C-E-N-T, not A-S-S-E-N-T. This is ascent. To ascend something is to, is to go up, right? And this psalm is, a, is an up psalm. You say, well, like, what do you mean, an up psalm? Well, this has to do with uh, the festivals in the Old Testament Levitical system, the nature of temple worship, and even the geography and topography of the country of Israel itself. So I'm going to try to pull all this together and help us understand, first of all, what is a psalm of ascent? So let's begin quick geography lesson in, uh, in, in Israel. Israel, little bitty country, okay? Little bitty country, like the size of, I think, Rhode Island I've read somewhere. Maybe, maybe Indiana would be better, uh, uh, better. So think of a country the size of Indiana approximately, And within this one country, you have mountains, and you have the lowest spot on earth, the Dead Sea. And so in Israel, you're all the time doing this, up and down and up and down. And this is particularly true for where the city of Jerusalem is, okay? Jerusalem is on the top of what we maybe call a small mountain range, a group of hills that uh, are around 2,700 feet above sea level, okay? So 2,700 feet up, the Mediterranean is in Israel as well. So you have that kind of variation just from the Mediterranean to, uh, to Jerusalem. What that meant was that if you were to go to Jerusalem, it required that you would walk up. You had to walk up. Now, you maybe started up in some other mountain range, but you had to go down, and then you'd have to go up. So Jerusalem, that's why it's called Mount Moriah. God tells Abraham in Genesis 22, go to Mount Moriah and offer your son Isaac. It's called often Mount Zion. It is is a fairly high elevation. And what this means biblically is that when, when the Bible talks about going to Jerusalem, it doesn't say we went south to Jerusalem or we went north to Jerusalem. It always says that we went up to Jerusalem. So one example, John 5, 1. And this, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now for us, when we say up, we mean north, right? So, hey, we're going to run up to Chicago. Or we're going to run up to Michigan for the, for the holiday. Or we're going to go down to Indianapolis, Okay, so up means north, down means south. Not true biblically. Jerusalem is always described in terms of its topographical elevation. We're going up to Jerusalem. 
Now, you combine that with the fact that in the Old Testament Levitical system, there were three festivals that Jews were required to go to Jerusalem for. This was Pentecost, uh, Passover, and a feast called the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tents. And so three times a year, all the Jews would go to Jerusalem. That'd be like us, here we are, 4th of July weekend in, in uh, the U.S., it'd be like the rule that every citizen of the United States of America for the 4th of July has to go to Washington, D.C. So here we go, we're all going to Washington, D.C. That's what it was like. So all the Jews from all around Israel would go to, would go to Jerusalem uh, for one of these uh, feasts or festivals. Now, Psalms 120 through 134 are Psalms of Ascent. And these were songs that the pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem would sing as they made their way up to Jerusalem. That's why it's a psalm of ascent. Here we are going up to the place of the temple of God. So for us, the equivalent would be like uh, songs of Broadway, right? Once you hit Broadway, you know you're kind of getting close, right? So let's start singing before we get to church, okay? Maybe our other campuses would be different roads or whatever, but that's the idea, is as we approach the place of worship, we're going to begin to sing songs, psalms uh, in Old Testament worship. So the real purpose of the Songs of Ascent was to prepare the people's hearts for corporate worship, and for that to begin before they showed up. Now, why do you suppose the Holy Spirit would inspire these Psalms of Ascent? And the answer is because the people back then were a lot like us. In other words, on their way to corporate worship, on their way to Jerusalem, they would hear things like this. What are we going to eat today? Hey, what are we going to eat today? Johnny, would you stop thinking about your stomach? We're going to worship. How long till we get there? Are we almost there? The kids are crying. People, you know, we're tired Think of this, they walked. They did not have air-conditioned, ergonomically designed and engineered vehicles. They didn't have drop-off areas. They didn't have cup holders for their morning coffee as they made their way to worship. They certainly didn't have comfortable chairs like you're sitting on right now. How do you suppose they arrived? They arrived in the same condition that you would arrive if today you walked here. Does it feel a little different maybe if you had to walk here? I think so. People are tired, and you all know how we get when we're tired, right? And they also were sinners. They were sinners. They argued with their spouse that morning. Any amens on that one? No? They held secret sins in their hearts that they hoped nobody would discover. Maybe like a few of us here today. They hoped nobody would realize the inconsistency between the psalm that they were singing and the actual way that they lived. In other words, they were just like us. And so the Holy Spirit inspired these psalms to be sung to get the people's hearts attuned and vertical to God so that once they arrived in Jerusalem and once they arrived for worship, their hearts were ready for it. Now, I want to ask you today, here's a question. What was the condition of your heart 
when you came in the door this morning? Did you bring your worship with you? Did you sing any songs of ascent as you came here? Did you come in ready? Did you come in here with your heart glad? And here's my sense, and I can't prove it, and I don't ride to church, and I, didn't, I don't spend mornings with people on Sundays other than my family. But my sense is that we have a lot of people that they come in here and they expect that once the service begins, that somehow inside they can just flip a switch from all of the troubles and the things that they were worrying about up to the moment that they arrived to glorious Godwardness in their heart. And you and I both know it doesn't work that way. And it doesn't matter how awesome the music is and the worship is or the preacher is, the real battle for in corporate worship is the heart of the congregation and where our hearts are at as we gather together. And so God in his wisdom, knowing the way that we're wired, wrote songs to get us ready for corporate gathering and corporate worship, a song of ascent. And the principle behind this, I think, is very, very helpful to us. And I just want to, this is now we're beginning with an application here already, that we maybe don't have songs of ascent, but we must prepare ourselves for worship. We've got to bring our worship with us. It doesn't just happen in here. Our hearts we bring with us. And this was a part, this was a big part, for example, of the Puritans who uh, they were very uh, strict about certain lifestyle choices that were in place to help people get ready for what they viewed as the highlight of the week, which was the gathering together with other Christians to worship God and to hear from his word. And I hope that this is the highlight of your week. Not your round of golf on Wednesday, not your son's baseball game Friday, and not whatever ball game is on this afternoon. Not to pick on just the sports people, but for some reason those come to my mind because I feel conviction about it. Uh, the highlight of our week is when we get to worship God, okay? And we work hard to do our part to help this be as effective as it can be. But in the end, it's not dependent, finally, about uh, what's here and leadership. It's your hearts, and my heart as well. Did you bring your worship with you today? The Puritans were big on that. The, the, the Dutch Reformed uh, practice, which is what my family comes out of, uh, also would, had all kinds of things about what you do on Saturday to get ready for worship. And if you grew up in that kind of a, a background, now you sort of look at it like, it's so legalistic. But wait, were there some principles there that maybe were helpful about how you sort of take care of practical matters so you can be focused on God and God's people and worship on Sunday with food and dress and clothing and different things? There's some principles there, right? What can we do to make the most of this? The most important thing is what the Puritans called heart work. Heart work. Getting your heart vertical. So a few things along this line that I want to encourage you is when you, when you come for corporate worship, make sure that you have already spent time in prayer and in confession of sin. 
I wonder today how many people spent time praying before you got here today. Don't raise your hand because then you'll need to confess the pride. Okay, so I'm asking rhetorically. (laughs) How many of us spent time in prayer this morning? How many of us maybe spent a little time in Scripture? Maybe reading a psalm, that's my practice, um, generally Saturday night or Sunday morning. I read a psalm and I just kind of let that kind of get my mind renewed and my heart ready for our gatherings together. Here's the most important thing, I think, is to come here with your heart happy in God. Get joyous in God. And maybe that's something else. Maybe that means that you go for a walk on a beautiful morning like today. You go for a walk and you see the sun and you see the blue sky and you feel the freshness of the morning and you think to yourself, I'm I'm an engineer or I'm a nurse or I'm a student or I'm a, a homemaker, but more important than any of those things, I am an image bearer of God and I am made for worship, right? And to elevate, to elevate your thoughts above the normal. That's why Jesus said Sabbath was made for man. This is a gift from God. That rhythm of one out of seven to be reminded that what, what really matters in eternity is not these things through the, through the week. They have importance as it relates to the ultimate importance, which is God Almighty and my relationship with him. Spend time, just think about the gospel. Just think about, I'm a great sinner and Christ is a great savior. Maybe imagine in your mind Jesus hanging on the cross, blood coming from him, and looking you right square in the face and saying, I'm doing this because I love you. And then come and worship. And you see how that principle of psalm of ascent and getting myself ready can make such a difference in our gatherings together and in our experience of them. So with that, let's get into Psalm 121. I'm just going to read it, okay? It's not very long. Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Amen. So we find here in the psalm that he actually begins with a question. Okay? The question is, where do I go for help? I lift up my eyes to the hills from where does my help come? And we find in this this question that it presupposes that there is a problem. When do we ask the question, where can I get help? When I have a problem in my life. And so the psalm right away connects with us because most of us have problems in life, don't we? It's a tough crowd for an amen, okay? You're like, I'm so discouraged in my problem, I can't even say amen. Great, that's fine, right? We, most of us have problems, and we look for help, don't we? Where do we go for help? We look for help when we have an issue that we cannot solve on our own, or we don't have the resources to uh, provide for on our own. Where do we look for help? 
I would say to you that one of the indications of where our hearts are spiritually in terms of our maturity is where we go for help when we're in trouble. I know for my daughters, I've got a four-year-old and a two-year-old. They know where to go for help in time of trouble. When they have a boo-boo or when they've had some kind of issue or a loud noise scares them, they come to uh, Jennifer and I, they go, Hodi, Hodi, just like that. Come on, admit it, that's adorable, you have to say. <laughs> totally adorable. Hodi, Hodi. Where do you go when you're in trouble? Mommy? Your good friend Jack Daniels? Where do you go when there's trouble? And where we go is an indication of where our real trust is. And the psalm begins with a question, but within the question, there is also the hint of an answer. Notice, I lift my eyes up to the hills. Where does my help come from? And you read the commentators, and they debate about these hills because they're like, wait, is he, is he looking to the hills in a good way, or is he looking to the hills in a bad way? Because in the ancient world, you to have the high ground, still true in warfare to this day, if you have the high ground, you have the advantage. And so I look to the hills. Maybe I can go up in the hills, have the high ground for the trouble that I have. Or maybe I can go to the hills and I can run away from the trial that I have. That would be good. Or is it bad? Because the hills also represented where the invaders and the marauders and the people that are coming to get you, they come over the hill and then they nail you. Is it, is it good? Is it bad? The people, it's debated. Here's what I think. I think that what the psalmist is doing is he is hinting at the answer. Remember, this is a song of, a, of ascent. To go to Jerusalem required that you had to ascend those hills, small mountains, around Jerusalem. Now, I have a picture right here. These are the actual hills around Jerusalem. So imagine how many over the centuries, pilgrims saw those hills. Maybe they were singing the very psalm that we have in front of us. But what did they know? No matter where they came from, which direction they came from, once they saw the hills, what did they know? Almost there. Exactly. We're getting close. It's like when I'm traveling and, I, and I'm coming from the west. When, when I get to Illinois' Grand Canyon, you know, you know the, the rock quarry there, I think to myself, Whew, well, there it is. I'm, I'm just a little bit further. I'm almost home. And those hills around Jerusalem represented for the pilgrim the fact, hey, we're almost there. And for the pilgrim, it wasn't just going to a city like maybe we would go to Washington, D.C. Jerusalem represented the heart of their faith and the heart of their worship. It meant they were drawing near to God. We're almost there. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. The psalmist quickly reminds his heart here that that his ultimate hope is found in God. I wonder how many of us could say that today. Where does my help come from? In my heart, my help comes from the Lord. He is my ultimate trust in this time of trouble. That's what the psalmist is doing. He is looking to the God of Israel. This is, this is the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. This is the God of the Old Testament. He is looking to Yahweh as his source of, of hope. 
In fact, notice it says, I lift up my eyes. That upward look. So often when we're in trouble, we are, we're downcast. There's another psalm that begins that way. Why so downcast, O oh my soul? Put your hope in God. That picture of when I'm loaded up with burdens and troubles, I'm, I'm looking downward, I'm looking at the trouble, I'm, I'm downcast in my soul. But this psalm says, I lift up my eyes. And maybe today that's your application. You walked in here all like this, and what you need is to lift up your eyes Help does not come from down here. Help comes from up here. Help comes from the Lord. I lift up my eyes to the God who can help. Now, what makes me think that the Lord is able to help? Notice it says, who made heaven and earth? How's that for a resume? Imagine the interview with me a moment. You're, you're interviewing God to see if maybe you can put your trust in him. God, I see here on your resume that you indicate an ability to help in times of need. What should make us confident that you can actually do the job? I made all of heaven and all of earth. Okay, well, that's pretty good, I think. In other words, the psalmist, he's not a pantheist. He's not looking to the hills to help him. He's looking to the God who made the hills and everything else. I like one commentator says it this way, the thought of this verse leaps beyond the hills to the universe, beyond the universe to its maker. Here is living help, primary, personal, wise, immeasurable. That's the God of heaven. And so again, that key word for you today might be the word up. I look up to God, off my problems, off my trial, I lift my eyes to the Lord who made everything that is. Well, God, how do you help us in our trouble? The psalm goes on now. Notice, first of all, that he supports us. Okay? God supports us. He keeps us from falling. He will not let your foot be moved. Now, why is that important? Remember, it's a song of ascent. It's a song of climbing. And the climbing here, it's not, this isn't mountain climbing, so we're not talking about ropes and carabiners and all this kind of, you know, crazy mountain climbing. It's more like a trail, a trail that's going up. And if you've done any of that, you know that even in that, there are places where if your foot slips, bad things can happen, can it? And isn't that, in fact, the NIV translates it that way. He will not let your foot slip. When you are hiking, there are places where if you, if you don't have a good grip, this slips and then that slips down here and pretty soon really bad things can happen. And isn't that true in life where there's times where things are precarious and we are, we're trying to be faithful, we're trying to walk, but if our foot slips in this one point, then it leads to this circumstance, which leads to that circumstance, what do we need? We need our foot not to slip right here. Slipping means falling. A little slip in a dangerous place can have devastating consequences. So when you're climbing, what you need is for that foot, where you put your foot, it's gonna stay. And the picture is this. As we walk in life, under our feet, here's God holding our foot, and now holding this one, and now holding this one. Holding us up. I just pulled two muscles doing that, so please... And isn't it also true that when you're in trouble, everything feels shaky? 
and uncertain, right? Maybe you're here that way today too. It's like, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. What do you need? I needed to know something. And there's God holding you up. Here's Jude. Now to him who was able to keep you from stumbling or falling and to present you blameless before his presence, before the presence of his glory with great joy. Here's the point, friends. God is really, really good at sustaining his people. He's been doing it for a very long time. And if he sent his son to die on the cross for your sins, he is absolutely committed to you. He who began the good work in you, Philippians 1, will carry it on to completion. And so while things may feel shaky, under our feet we don't realize that there's God going, gotcha, 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 gotcha. How? Here's a few ways that he does it. His promises. The Holy Spirit inside testifies to us that I can trust God. He said he was going to come through. Those promises gird us up. His people. How often has God, if you've been a Christian for very long, has God used a fellow brother or sister in the Lord who comes alongside of you in a time of trouble and maybe says, oh, you're going through that? I went through that five years ago. And then this happened and that happened and here's how God worked in this. In fact, I look back at that experience, I'm actually thankful it happened in my life. And you go, Really? I hadn't been thinking about it that way. Yeah, man, it's going to be fine. God's got you. Right? And what is that? That's actually God underneath your foot going, gotcha, right here. And he's using Jane and Sally and Fred to hold you up. How about his provision? And this is just God's ability to flat meet our needs and to do so providentially. It's the, it's the doctrine of the providence of God that God, through the orchestrating of circumstances, can so orchestrate things that when you have a trouble, he comes and meets it with an, the, with an answer. He meets the need. And I can tell you in my own life, I have, there are things, stories I could tell you of wacky circumstances where God met my need in such a precise way, I can only say it was the providence of God. And there he is, just like, you know, mastering all of these things. Here's the problem, here's the answer, here's the problem, here's the need, here's the provision. And he does it over and over and over and over again in our life. And all of these keep us from slipping into unbelief, slipping into a kind of bitterness that walks away from God. I think of the old hymn, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Your feet will not be moved. He watches over us always. He who keeps you will not slumber Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. In the ancient world, they would attribute human qualities to the gods that they worshipped. One example, if you might remember, when Elijah confronts the 400 prophets of, of Baal, this is uh, 1 Kings 19, he confronts those uh, prophets and, and they're, they're trying to get fire to come down from heaven. 
And Elijah's there, and he's watching them as they're kind of crying out to their gods to do it. And he says, oh, well, maybe your God is drowsy. Maybe he's asleep. He even says this, maybe he's going to the bathroom. That's literally in the Bible, okay? Elijah was a good trash talker, wasn't he? But they believed that their gods were like us. And what are we like? We get tired. Maybe some of you right now, third service, getting a little tired. Wrap the sermon up, Pastor Steve. We're getting a little drowsy. I can't pay attention like I did earlier on. We sleep. God's not like that. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, every single day of your entire life, the God of heaven is not diminishing in his vigor, in his attention, in his focus. Christian, think of this. The God of heaven, the God who made heaven and earth, has his eyes on you. He knows all the circumstances going on in your life. He knows all the anxieties in your heart. He knows all the things that you aren't anxious about that you should be. He is watching you constantly, vigilantly, all the time. Behold, he who keeps Israel, this word here, it's, it's the key word in Psalm 121. It's repeated five more times in the psalm. You'll hear it as I get through it. It, it means this, that God is our keeper. He is our protector, okay, our protector. In soccer, the goalie is the goalkeeper. Sometimes he's called the goalie, sometimes he's called the keeper. And what does a, what does a, a goalie do? He protects, right, the goal from ball. Any ball that comes out, I'm protecting it, right? I'm not letting anything, it's just my goal, I'm protecting everything here. You have a good keeper, you can, you can, you can win some games. And God is the ultimate keeper. He protects what? His people, think of that. His protective care is upon you. And this allows us to rest assured in our life. Charles Spurgeon tells the story. He's, I'll, I'll be quoting this probably more through the summer as we do this series because Spurgeon wrote, it's called The Treasury of David. It's kind of his magnus opus and it's just on the Psalms. And he tells a story in Psalm 121 about this uh, woman who uh, somebody broke into her house while she was sleeping and stole her possessions. And she goes to the king and she says to the king, will you please compensate me for this lost property? The king says, how did you lose it? She says, I fell asleep and while I slept, a robber entered my house. Why did you fall asleep? She says, I fell asleep because I believed that you were awake. The king was so delighted in her answer that he ordered that her losses be made up. I fell asleep because I believed you were awake. And is that not a picture of the kind of rest that we can have in our life, knowing that God's got us covered? I mean, if you really think about it, how of all, you know, how do we sleep at night, really? If you think about all the problems in the world and all the things that could go wrong and your body and all those organisms, organs and everything and how one can go wrong and you're about to get you know, some doctor to tell you you got something wrong and this, that, and the other and your kids and your job and the market and the politics and nuclear war. 
It's no wonder we all don't just lay in bed like this. And you're saying, that's actually how I do lay in bed. (laughs) What allows God's people to rest? I rest because I believe you're awake. That in those hours of the night and even during the day, my soul can be at peace, at peace knowing that God's got it covered the maker of heaven and earth. I sing because I'm happy. I sing because I'm free. His eye is on the sparrow. And I know he watches me. God is a keeper of his people. Here's what it says, the Lord is your keeper, the Lord is your shade at your right hand. In an arid climate, a desert climate, to have somebody, it's like the rich people in the old pictures, they had somebody walking around constantly with an umbrella, right, keeping the shade on them. God is the shade at your right hand. How great it would be in a desert to have somebody just constantly protecting you from what can um, hurt you. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. In other words, God protects us day and night, day and night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. What is evil? Evil's that unknown thing. I don't even know that it's around the corner. I just know something's lurking out there. Somebody wants to get me. Something's gonna happen. This is the Lord's prayer, right? Jesus taught us, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. That evil that I don't even know is out there. God, I pray that you would protect me from what I can't even know. The Lord will keep your coming, going out and your coming in. We say it this way, our comings and our goings. And this is why it's called the traveler's psalm, is because the idea here is that it's just all-encompassing. Day and night, uh, in my comings, in my goings, in those times where I'm just like, hey, sweetheart, I'm going to run to the grocery store. I'm just going to pick up some milk. And you get in the car, and what you don't realize as you're driving down that road is that if that person's on their cell phone or I'm off by an inch on my steering wheel, I'm dead. I'm dead. How, why do we ever drive anywhere? Unless I think that there is somebody sovereignly over everything who loves me and is protecting me and is caring for me. From this time forth and forevermore. Day and night, coming and going, he protects us and he will forever. So do you see why Psalm 121 is so beloved? And maybe it's a new one for you. Maybe it's a new beloved psalm for you. I hope that it is. Because who knows what lies around the bend in the journey of life. Do you know what's going to happen to you this week? Do you know? I don't either. I don't know. But what I know is the God of heaven loves me. And he is sovereignly in control of Wednesday and November and 2020. He's there, protecting and promising. And so the psalm, it just pulls us out of this self-sufficiency where I've got to figure out every contingency and I've got to worry about every little detail in my life. No, I can rest knowing God's got it covered. Now, you might read Psalm 121 and go, that sounds just like utopic. That's sort of like, I don't think so. 
Because I've had my foot slip a few times. So how can that be a promise that's true? I can't say it any better than Eugene Peterson did, so this is a little bit of a longer quote, but it's so good. Listen, the Christian life is not a quiet escape to a garden where we can walk and talk uninterrupted with the Lord. It's not a fantasy trip to heavenly city where we can compare blue ribbons and gold medals with others who made it to the winner's circle. The Christian life is going to God. In going to God, the Christians travel the same ground that everyone else walks on, breathe the same air, drink the same water, shop in the same stores, read the same newspapers, are citizens under the same governments, pay the same prices for groceries and gasoline, fear the same dangers, are subject to the same pressures, get the same distresses, are buried in the same ground. The difference is that each step we walk, each breath we breathe, we know we are preserved by God. We know that we are accompanied by God. We know that we are ruled by God. And therefore, no matter what doubts we endure or what accidents we experience, the Lord will preserve us from evil. He will keep our life. Finally, one final word. The hills around Jerusalem are famous for one other very major event. It was a hill outside of Jerusalem called Golgotha that our Lord Jesus Christ gave his life as a sacrifice for our sins. And there is gospel in Psalm 121. I lift my eyes up to the hills of Jerusalem. Where does my help come from? It comes from one particular hill outside Jerusalem. And one thing that happened there in the person of Jesus in his death on the cross for me. And the ultimate help that I need is not a new job, it's not more money in the bank, it's not you know, guidance in some decision. The ultimate help I need is to, be, is, is to draw near to God. To know, my, to know my creator through his son, my savior, Jesus. And if you're here today and you're in trouble, lift your eyes up to the hills and one in particular, and put your hope and your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. To him be glory forever. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you today for the care, the provision, the protection. We don't pay you for this. You're not obligated to this. This is your love for us. Thank you that you are love, and you promise this love forever. Encourage those that are here that maybe they are despairing, their eyes are downward, lift their hearts and may their eyes be upward to you. Meet the needs, God, of our hearts and our lives, protect us and be glorified in us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.